Well, thank you, Randy. Good morning, Church at the Red Door. Uh, great to be with you. You know, I, I don't know when it was. It was maybe two or three months ago. We maybe even more that we stopped. We remember that we were doing the. It's been this many days. I don't know how many days it's been. It's been close to eight months now since we've been able to meet face to face. The tears gone back. I mean, you know, we're. I just want you to know, I want Church of the Red Door family to know that we have teams. We have been working on every possible option you could imagine together. Uh, been one of the more challenging times of my life to try to think through how do we, as the Bible implores us to do, gather together, uh, not to forsake it because of all the incredible benefits. So next week we'll be announcing to you uh, a little bit of our plan. And as I've said before, no alternative is a perfect alternative. I mean, being back together, worshiping together, uh, not having masks, being able to give each other a hug, that's a perfect alternative. None of these, from at least from our perspective. Now, God may be doing something behind the scenes, folks, that we are just completely and utterly unaware of. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we move into a place where we're more liberal with our conversations in terms of our neighbors and inviting them in. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I do know this, especially in light of this last week. Jesus is still on the throne. You know, before we get started, I, it, it, would, uh, it behooves me to uh, talk a little bit about what's gone on this last week. Uh, you know, cultural commentary is a big part of uh, application, taking the gospel, taking this message of the kingdom, applying it to where we are. People talk about that all the time. I talk to you about that a lot. First, we have to try to look at something, observe it, determine its meaning, and then what's the application? What's the application in the culture in which we live? The challenge for that is, especially as it relates to the political realm, is that people come down on both sides and for what they would consider Jesus-centric biblical purposes. Uh, and that's why uh, pastors say, many people say, why don't pastors just make a stand and say something? If it was as clear as the pundits would have you believe, and yet there are challenges, especially in this environment in which we live. There just is. So, you know, sometimes I go out, I search, I look at mentors, some men and women that I've never even met. John Piper is a He's a phenomenal expositor of the Bible. I may not see eye to eye with him on everything, but th this was sent to me this last week, and I think it's appropriate, and he's giving counsel to people like me, to people like Paul and Randy, to pastors all over the country, and I cannot agree more with what I'm about to read you, especially as it relates to the division and the challenges that we have in our culture right now. Now... Let me just say this. This is, again, John's word to pastors. Very simple, just a few paragraphs. But if you'll just try to tune in here and catch the spirit of this and step back a little bit from maybe some of your very, very strong convictions. There's no, no problem having strong convictions as it relates to having people in our country live in a flourishing place where the gospel can be freely, freely advanced and the kingdom can grow and people can come to Christ. But listen to John's words to me. All right, are you ready for this? He says, may I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Now, we are in the quietness here of my study. This is right here. I, you can't see it off camera here, but this is my desk over here, and this is the study. This is where I spend time trying to say, Lord, what do you want to say to your people? He said, imagine in your study, imagine the, um, that America collapses, 
first anarchy, then tyranny, from the right or from the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, maybe even martyrdom. Then ask yourself this question. Has my preaching been developing real, radical Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It's what we're going to be talking about both this morning and in weeks to come. Jesus, uh, what he announced, what the gospel was. We've talked a lot about how to share and tell the gospel. We're going to get more deeply into the life of Jesus over these coming weeks. But listen, John goes on. Christians who will act like the believers in Hebrews 10.34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Christians who will face hate and reviling and exclusion for Christ's sake and yet rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven. We'll get to that in Luke chapter 6, the very words of Jesus himself. Have you been cultivating real Christians? He's asking me as a pastor. Have you been cultivating? I'll put my name in there. Jeff, have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and the worth of the Son of God? Again, something we're going to be doing in pretty much this entire season. We're going to look at the beauty and the worthiness of our God. Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded the unsearchable riches of Christ? Ephesians 3.8, we went through, if you'll remember, a little over a year ago, the entirety of Ephesians, and we looked at the unsearchable riches of God. Are you raising up generations of those? Now catch this. Are you raising generations up of those who say with Paul, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, everything to me is as loss, and he had a lot. I mean, in his day, Paul had a lot to lose, and yet it meant really nothing to him, at least compared to these unsearchable riches of Christ. Have you shown them that they are sojourners and exiles, First Peter 2.11, and that they're citizenship is in heaven from which they await a savior the lord jesus christ philippians 3 20 do they feel in their bones now catch this do they feel in their bones that to live is christ and to die is gain philippians chapter one you know i i spent quite a bit of time this last few weeks uh, with some of our precious people who've been either We've lost some. I've been in the last waning moments with some. Some of you are very lonely. You've lost a spouse recently. I've been with some that are right on the doorstep. I've been with some this last few weeks that have just received news of a very dire place. I always take them to Philippians 1.21. How deeply is that embedded in our DNA that to leave this little planet in rebellion to God and go be in a place where, as we'll see in weeks to come, there is one righteous king ruling, no division, no strife, no factions or division. 
Can you, can you imagine that? Can we get that down in our spirit? It does not matter from that perspective what's going on in the earthly scene realm. We're ready to depart. Whether our candidate wins or loses, our party is advancing or not, our interests, our, all those things that we may hold dear, whether or not they're found to be in a good place or a bad, we're still deeply embedded in our soul is the vision that we would it's better to be with Christ and apart from the body is that in us am I doing an adequate job of unveiling what clearly was the message of Jesus not to love this present world I hope so I hope that's more embedded in my soul sometimes through challenges and strife It gives us a sense, I cannot tell you how many people that I have been with that have gone through absolute chaos in their life, either the loss of a loved one or relational strife or others. And in reflection, after a period of time, almost to a person, if they have the gospel and Christ living in them, they say, this has given me more of a longing, more of a longing for the kingdom to be fully manifest. In other words, Jesus either coming back or me going to be with him. Do we have that in our soul, Church at the Red Door? Are we we at that place? If, if 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 I unpack this or whoever is in front of you are unpacking that Bible properly, that should be part of our part of our DNA. You know. He finishes simply with this. Have you neglected these greatest of all realities and repeatedly diverted their attention onto the strategies of politics? Have you inadvertently created the mindset that the greatest issue in life is saving in America and its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people that the greatest issue is exalting Christ with or without America? Now that may offend some of you, but... Look, we have to realize that our primary allegiance as followers of Jesus is not to our American citizenship or to our commonwealth. It's a big part of who we are, and God has put us here for a time and a season. We were constructed from before the foundations of the earth to live, I was, you, in the 21st century, and this to be our home. I understand the sovereignty of God, but it is not our primary allegiance. We care about America. We deeply care about America. But is it our primary allegiance? He goes on and concludes with this. Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time, including America, are people who have the aroma of another world with another king? Now, I appreciate that. That is just, that is beautiful. So his word to me as a pastor, and uh, you will be the judge of that, whether or not that is down in your bones, come, as they say, hell or high water, uh, we have nothing to fear. Regardless of who wins, who doesn't in coming elections, look, we have a rock underneath us and his name is Christ and he is coming back and he will set up a kingdom that will that will never be destroyed it is a forever kingdom 
You know, I've been thinking this last week, Church at the Red Door, I've been thinking about, we're going to go through a journey of the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Luke, You'll lay a little bit of background, who was he, why did he write this Gospel, how does it differ from some of the other Gospels. We're going to talk about some of those things over these, uh, these coming months, and, uh, but I want you to take you back to the time of Jesus. I think it's especially appropriate. I was really thinking about this just the last 24 hours. Think about the time that God chose to send Jesus into the earth and where and what people group was he to manifest the, himself into this long-awaited light into the nations that was first promised to Abraham some 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. Why then? Why at that time? Why would it be such a chaotic place? Think about the time and the divisiveness. I think sometimes we look at our political situation now or the, our, our nation and, and really kind of the, the division among the world, but especially our nation, and we just seem so at each other's throats. I mean, there's the factions everywhere and self-interests and and, so, and everyone's claiming moral high ground. Everyone is claiming moral high ground. And it just seems so like it could never be resolved. Can I just tell you, such was the case during the time of Jesus. Think about it for a second. You had a Roman occupation. Imagine America for a minute, if you will, if a foreign nation, if China had come and had sent their emissaries over and their ruling dictates and they were actually running the country. They would set up a few puppet kings around America to rule under their own rule. Imagine that scenario. That's what it was. And boy, were there some political backlash. I mean, you had, you had the zealots at that time, the real political operatives who were like, we're going to overthrow this thing. Come hell, yeah, hell or high water, we're going we're gonna to take our nation back even if we have to take it by force. And that was part of the divisiveness of that time. There were some that were actually functioning reasonably well. There were the Sadducees, and they were um, political operatives of sort. They had kind of made friends. They were the priestly class, and yet they had made friends with their Roman occupiers. And as a result of that, they were the, they were the political insiders of sorts. They had made their peace with the Romans. Not perfectly, but to the degree that they were having a pretty good life. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees, hated them. They were the holy ones. They were the ones that were taking God's um, manifest destiny for the nation of Israel. They were the ones that were responsible. And then there were even the Essenes who were out in the hills and they had completely removed themselves, maybe not too dissimilar from militia groups or something. I mean, they were like, we're the children of light. We're the, we're the ones and they hated, they were at one another's throats and they were all vying for self-interest and they had occupiers. Imagine the state of the nation, Israel in this case, and here comes God clothed in human flesh entering the stream of humanity. Factions, divisions, strife, I think that even go well beyond what we're experiencing here in America today. And Jesus enters the stream of humanity. Why? Why? Because he announced good news. Another kingdom was going to avail itself and he was going to, God was in the business of sending his son to create a new kind of people group, a new kind of community that would not be 
subservient to the interests of the earthly realm, but would be completely subservient to a king who would rule forever. That's really, in the end, folks, that's the story of the Bible. From beginning to end, the story of the Bible is exactly that. A king is coming, and we'll see that in a minute, and it's extraordinary. Folks, I mean, this, this is the message. That's the me- You want to know what the message of the Bible? That's the message of the Bible. So what we're going to do over these coming months is we're going to go step by step, line by line, verse by verse. We're going to go through the Gospel of Luke. I think it probably, and I, I was thinking this not directly in correlation with the elections and all this. I had been wanting to do this for a while. I've done this in other groups, going through a gospel. I'm actually halfway through a gospel now with a men's group here in the valley. Uh, And I will tell you that it is life-changing. Every time I read, and the gospels are, there are similarities, there's repetition, but there's a different perspective on a lot of this good news. Now remember, again, just as a reminder, gospel simply means good news. That's all that means. Good news. So we have uh, from the Hebrew word, uh, uh, baser, or then the feminine part of that, uh, besara, and it means exactly that. That's what, and then in the Greek, we get euangelion, which again means good news. It's a proclamation. It, it's a royal pronouncement. It can be used in various ways. Something extraordinary happened. Maybe it happened on the battlefield. Maybe it happened somewhere. Or a king has come into a position of authority and it, there is this besorah, there's this incredible good news because a king is now being announced or a victory is being declared. I, I take you to 2 Samuel chapter 18 as an example of this in the Hebrew. Uh, 2 Samuel 18, 31, and this was at the death of Absalom. Behold, the Cushite arrived and the Cushite said, let my lord the king receive Receive good news. Now remember, this had been a conspiratorial thing by Absalom trying to overtake his own father, and David was mixed. He loved his son, and, and yet Absalom was in abject disobedience to his own father and trying to set up his own kingdom. It was a coup. The Cushite comes back with this good news, for the Lord has freed you this day, speaking to David, from the hand of those who rose up against you then the king said to the Cushite, it is well with the young man, is it well with the young man Absalom? David's still concerned about his son. And the Cushite answered, let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. He was announcing his death. Now everybody else who supported David was finally so happy to see this insurrection uh, laid down. And yet David had this compassion for his son. But for the nation, maybe not for David's own emotions, but for the nations, this conspiracy against the king had been finally put down. It was a picture of victory, and it came back as Basar or uh, Basarah, the feminine. So we get this picture of good news. And again, we get to the New Testament. Now, there are many places in the Bible that it talks about good news. I think of Isaiah 40 as an example. You know, get up on a high mountain and announce to Israel this good news, okay? And then again in Isaiah 41, the very next chapter, talking about good news. Jesus came and, and his very first words in Nazareth to, the, to that faction there in the synagogue that were listening to him. He was announcing that Isaiah uh, 60 had actually been applied to him. Let me read that for you real quick. Uh, Isaiah 
And again, we've, we've looked at this numerous times, but this was Jesus' introduction to, and he announced, this is Isaiah 61, this is applies to me, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to what? To bring good news to the afflicted, sending me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. So Jesus was announcing this unbelievable good news, this proclamation, this royal announcement that a king was at hand, a new kingdom. But it's not going to be like the ones in the past. And we're going to see that again in a minute. So as we look at this good news, that's why we call them again the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all slightly different. They all give a facet of the character and the nation the nature of the Son of God. If we look first at Matthew, it really pictures Jesus to a Jewish mind, and it really talks about a king. Why? Because the Jews were anticipating a king. This is the good news of this long-awaited king. Now, they, they were thinking just someone to overthrow the Romans. They were as short-sighted as we get sometime in our own culture. We're looking for some kind of political operative to release us, to give us justice, to bring us into fairness and equality. We're always looking for that. And we realize, and then we jump on board, and then we find ourselves with all these strange bedfellows here, you know, that we don't share anything in common with, and yet we get so wrapped up in it. Though this was, this is a forever king. And the Jews were anticipating, but they didn't realize it was going to be someone way beyond someone who was going to subdue the Romans. In fact, Jesus never actually physically did that during the, his 33 and a half years on earth. But his kingdom would ultimately conquer. Rome's been long gone, you know? Rome's been gone for a long time. There will be a day, unless Jesus comes back, and maybe he will in our lifetime, I don't know. There will be a day, and many say we're in it right now. As Rome declined, as all these other great Countries and nations have declined over time. The American experiment is coming to an end. We see its end. Many say that. Are you entrenched in whether or not that's true? I'm not, I'm not saying whether it is or not. I see some fractures in our country and in our, in our whole ethos. But I will tell you whether it does or not, if it goes the way of every other nation, and it goes in, not, it doesn't cease to exist, the land's not going to burn up and everybody leave, but if it ceases to exist as the nation that we know, there is still a kingdom with foundations. That's what we're seeking. That's what Matthew does. This is the king. This is the son of David. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It was written to the Jewish mind. They were well entrenched in understanding all this terminology. Not so much the Gentiles. Mark, on the other hand, well, Jesus, he pictures Jesus more as a servant. Immediately Jesus did this, and immediately Jesus did that. Why? Because Mark had the perspective of a servant. Why? Because Mark was a servant. So he could see the nature and Jesus of not just the king, but as the servant king. The Gospel of John, very clearly, the entirety of the Gospel of John is pointing toward, very different than the other three synoptic Gospels, the Gospel of John is pointing to the divinity of Jesus himself, that God, he was the Son of God, not just the Son of Man. And then finally, Luke, what we'll be going through over these coming months, Luke is really a picture 
of Jesus' actual, his humanity. Uh, of course, it gives, we'll get pictures of his divinity for sure. But in terms of its scope and its, its actual, it's pointing towards Jesus as being fully man. So we have Jesus fully God, Jesus fully man, Jesus is king, and Jesus is servant. Now those are in some ways gross oversimplifications, but that primarily, the good news coming at you from different ways. This is not just someone that you can just pigeonhole into one thing. This is a very amazing, un unbelievable God-man, God-man king, God-man king, God-man king servant. Now, that doesn't seem to fit, but that's really the portrayals of the gospel. See, I think something really profound happens when we tell the gospel, meaning we tell the, and you've heard me say this, telling the entirety of the story of Jesus. Not just that Jesus died on the cross. We've talked about that. How do you share the gospel? But the full story of his life. And that's what we're going to be going through in the gospel of Luke. Now, what's really amazing, and I don't know that you've ever really thought about this, but what's so amazing and so different about biblical Christianity, about the understanding of Jesus as being the foundation for our faith, our faith in and ability to understand the creator of the cosmos, his father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. What's so incredible about that is that is so unlike, folks, that is so unlike any other religion. If you take Buddhism or Hinduism or uh, Islam, I mean, Islam, for instance, the study of the Quran is really a picture of trying to, the nature of how to submit to God. Buddhism, how to suppress this suffering in this world. As a result, to do that, we have to suppress desire. It's, it's almost like these guru tactics to try to help us spiritually arrive at a certain place. Biblical Christianity, very different. Why? Because it puts its entire eggs in one basket, the person of Jesus. Now, what's so fascinating about that is that the person of Jesus is an historical human being that can be examined historically. As we've talked about many times, there are many other extant manuscripts that talk about the life of Jesus both Jewish and non-Jewish, both believing and non-believing sources outside our biblical text that corroborate the fact that Jesus lived and was, for some, claimed to have risen from the dead. People could go back in the time of the early writings of these and talk to people that were there, ask and communicate and, and all these different things. You've got to realize that that is... That, as John Dixon says, actually creates an incredible vulnerability to the message of Christianity, which is we have an historical figure that makes an unbelievable claim, and not just a claim about knowledge about, but the claim to divinity itself is an amazing thing about our faith. That's important to understand. We can go back and look at the life of Jesus and many, many have come to follow him by simply reading the Gospels. For some of you who've read the Gospels through maybe hundreds of times, can I just tell you there never, ever, ever is a time in my life where I read through a Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and something 
shifts. I have new eyes to see it at a season. Maybe a season ago, I couldn't have seen this. You know, God's always, the Holy Spirit, it's one of the actually amazing things about life with the Holy Spirit is you can feel an outside presence guiding you, speaking to you, teaching you, just as Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. He would guide us into all truth. So something three or four years ago, I couldn't have possibly really understood. I mean, I knew the story. I knew, I knew the words that Jesus spoke. But now my life has shifted maybe into a different season or I'm going through something differently or I see things differently. And now I go back and read the gospel for the umpteenth time and I see it with new eyes. I beg you not to ever think that you can, well, I've read that before. It's not like a lot of these other books that I have on my shelf, certainly like a novel. Well, I read it once and then I read it again a few years ago and I'd forgotten a few things. No, no, no. It is a divine document. We're going to be talking about that over the next week or so. It is a divine document that is also imbued with the human story, and it's both divine and human origin. We're going to see that in the first few verses of the Gospel of Luke. So I'm asking, in fact, let's just stop right now. Let's just pray for a second. Lord, I'm asking as we begin our journey through this Gospel of Luke, you give us eyes to see things that we've never seen, to be impacted in ways we've never been impacted. By reading stories that we've read maybe a hundred times, Lord, only you can do that. Help us with it, in Jesus' name. So again, let's, let's, let's go back for a second and let's talk just a little bit about the gospel and what it is, this royal pronouncement, this announcement of a king, of a victory that and when it was first preached, will be won, but now, in retrospect, has been won, a victory over sin and Satan. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. This victory, this announcement, this, this gospel, a new kingdom is at hand, a new king is here, again to do what? Create a people for himself that will live together forever and ever and take on the very characteristics of their king. It will be a righteous king. So, now let's think about this for a second. This is the only form of government that's ever going to work. And again, you've heard me quote this. I've quoted it a thousand times. It bears repeating, though. There is only, democracy is the worst form of government, Winston Churchill said, except for every other form of government. Now, we know, you've heard me teach it. Why? Because the Bible teaches it. There's only really one excellent political setup, and that is rule by a righteous king. So what we are preaching when we preach the gospel includes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But it includes three primary things. Number one, and we're going to see many of these in the gospel of Luke. We're going to, number one, is he, was Jesus qualified? Now, we would say qualified like, you know, what is his educational degree and all the, no, no, no. Was he qualified from a Jewish perspective to be this king? Which would necessitate, as we look at Luke chapter 1, Verse 32, 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, obviously speaking of Mary, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. That's why these genealogies, by the way, were so important because Jesus' uh, bloodline was royal. You can trace it all the way back to the Davidic line. Jesus was 
in the line of David. And what we can see is that she's going to bear a son and conceive in her womb, and it's going to be there's going to be this divine picture. It was also qualified under Isaiah chapter 7 that a virgin would be with child, a, a young woman, an Alma would be with child. So was Jesus qualified? Well, on the most basic Jewish understanding was line of David, yes. And then you go into deeper things that they maybe didn't anticipate. A virgin birth, uh, this particular family at this particular time, at the proper time, Jesus was, number one, fully qualified. That's good news. Jesus was qualified. Number two, Jesus uh, was a king that truly cares. There's unbelievable. Look, we can talk about rulers all day, but a ruler who cares about the nation, cares about his people, that's significant. And so as the prophets had seen, he was going to come not only to rule and then his mark would see, but he's coming as a suffering servant. Now that's an amazing thing. This king is going to care. He's going to have to die, die a cruel death so that sins can be wiped away. And again, this new kind of community can be formed. Now let, let's look again and we'll, we'll get to it eventually. Luke chapter 24, verse 46 and 47. And then he said to them, Jesus, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, this messianic king, must suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Again, Jesus' words, this was on the road to Emmaus. Don't you guys understand? This is, this is what all the prophets had seen. Have, had done. Why is your mind so veiled to understanding, Jesus would announce, here comes this king and he's going to lay down his life. He's going to care for his subjects to the point of giving up his own life. He's not going to do this for his own personal interest. He's not going to be benefiting in the financially. He's not going to have these offshore bank accounts or whatever. I mean, I look at some of the stuff I've hear, heard about, you know, Putin over in Russia. And I mean, he's, the, he's so wealthy, it's beyond understanding. We go back, you know, when the walls came down there and we see Saddam Hussein and some of these other guys and they had stacks and stacks and stashes of, of finance in the walls. Remember when they were tearing down those walls? People, the kings, most kings, when they get to power, they enrich themselves. This king is going to come to power and he's going to die naked on a cross, a cruel, brutal death for his subjects, and not only the subjects of his nation, but for the entire world. The good news is that this king is not only qualified, but this king, this king cares. And then finally, he has the power to do all this. I mean, it's one thing to come in and lay down your life, but then you're dead. How are you going to rule your subjects? It's one thing to come in and serve, but never reach notoriety. It's one thing, you could be qualified and you could even care, but do you have the authority to execute on your plan? It's part of what I see as the kind of the three-pronged piece of this unbelievable news. He's qualified. He's, he's the king. He cares. But he also has the authority. And the, again, Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to him as to his disciples, and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now you can say, well, I don't believe that. But I'm just telling you, that's the announcement 
And that announcement is being, has been proclaimed for 2,000 years. That's our task. That's our task. So let's, kind of running short on time, I'm not going to get quite where I wanted to get today, but we're going to, I, I'm, I'm just going to read this first portion of Luke, and I'm going to set us up for next week, and I cannot wait to share this. This is going to seem somewhat innocuous when you're reading and say, why is that that relevant? But let me just tell you, it is. And whether or not you know it, you may not be asking this. I, I Look, I have no problem now, based on what I know, to believe that this book is divine in origin. And we're going to explain what that means. And uh, I have no problem believing that God has used the human instrument to give us a picture of the Bible. And then the question emerges, what does the Bible say about itself? So first of all, who was Luke? Well, Luke, uh, we don't know a whole lot about Luke. We know that he was a traveling companion of Paul. Most believe that he was a Gentile. There are some elements of the church that believe he probably had Jewish, was Jewish. But I think the predominant view is that he was a Gentile. We know he was a doctor. And we know from these first four verses of Luke that he was, well, he had a relationship with this guy named Theophilus. Now, first of all, who's Theophilus? Well, we don't know exactly. We know he was a man of position. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. Now, he could have done that just because he has the creator of the universe living on the inside of him and that but chances are that Theophilus was someone of you know position and maybe power and had maybe uh, had some wealth. Some believe and I think again this is speculative but some believe because during the time of Luke you got to realize that many doctors were actually servants of a particular household or people. So they were really seen as servants. Now, we, we kind of don't view that that way anymore. Doctors are some of the, sometimes the more, certainly the top uh, 5% in terms of income earners or so uh, in most communities. But back then, doctors were often servants of someone that had the ability to pay for them. Some speculate, and again, this is speculation. Some speculate that maybe he was a patron of some sort of Luke, and Luke now is chronicling, and he was released in some way of his service to Paul to travel with, and now he's putting together this, this written transcript to give back to his benefactor, to his, to, well, to this patron, Theophilus. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but we know they had a relationship. We know Theophilus was a believer. And again, Theophilus simply means God, Theos, lover. He's a, he's a lover of God. So we know he's a believer. It's his name tells us that. And so now we get this picture of Paul putting something together for his friend. This is a personal letter written by Luke. Now the question will emerge, and we'll get into this more next week. Where did Luke get this information? But let's just read the first four verses. Are you ready for this? And then we'll close this morning. And I'm going to set you up, have you be thinking about some of these questions for next week. Verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the life of Jesus. These things were extraordinary. And by, right there, Luke says, there are a lot of accounts of the things that have been written. If it was that spectacular, and of course it was, the very foundation of our faith, most spectacular event, 
that's ever occurred. The seminal moment of all human history. Jesus invading the earth. God invading the earth. His son invading the earth in human flesh. The incarnation. Well, what is this? Well, there are a lot of accounts. It says, just as they were handed down to us, what was handed down? Well, these various accounts. By those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, these were accounts that were made by eyewitnesses. That's important. We don't know if Luke ever had laid eyes on Jesus. There's a high, high probability, most would agree, that he did never lay eyes on Jesus. Well, why is he writing a gospel? Because he was an intelligent guy. He was an extraordinary historian. He was learned. He was the perfect guy. Together, some of these sources have these conversations my goodness, he travels with Paul, even though Paul wasn't a follower of Jesus until the road to Damascus. He certainly, Paul had laid down his life for what he had seen on that road, a resurrected Jesus. He knew a lot. He was a perfect person to write this gospel. And then it says, verse 3, and it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything. What is this everything? What are we talking about? Well, the story of Jesus. It's awesome. It's beautiful. We've investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out to you in consecutive order. Now that gives us some insight. We have a chronological gospel. Unlike the other gospels, this is a very clear picture of consecutive order. Luke is unique in that way. And then he says, most excellent Theophilus. And again, what I said earlier was speculation, but there is some feeling that that could be a possibility. So that you may know, why is he writing this gospel? Why are we going through this gospel? He would say the same thing to us today. So Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, I've spent a lot of time working on compiling all these various documents from eyewitness sources. I've been traveling with Paul. I've, I, we've spent late nights talking about Jesus. Paul has an understanding of the Old Testament, the Tanakh that we'll talk about again in the future, this Tanakh, he has such a deep insight, and he says it's all about Jesus. Luke had a profound, had profound insights, and he carries his own personal insights into the writing of this letter, naturally. I don't know why we need to freak out about that. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have already been taught. So Theophilus had been taught, but now, Paul, now Luke has chosen compile all this, and then give it to him. Now, why? Well, certainly, we believe now. We understand. I don't know that Luke could have ever conceived that this letter, as arduous as it was for him to compile all this and put this together and the thoughtfulness and the clarity in which he writes, I, I know that he was doing it for the office. I can't imagine that Luke was sitting there writing on it. One day, this is going to be the bestseller of all time. There, nothing will even come close. It'll be translated into every language around the planet. People will be talking about me and saying, turn to the gospel of Luke or whatever for the next, you know, multiple thousands of years. I, I can't, I don't imagine that he did that, but he did it with such care that we're still talking about it. Now, now, folks, that's extraordinary. I hope you're getting excited about this journey we're going to take, again, through the gospel of Luke. So next week, I want to get back a little bit to this 
conceptual idea of this both being a divine document and yet also a human document. He said he got other sources. We did. What sources were they? We'll see next week. Well, Mark was probably a source. Matthew was in some ways a source. There were maybe some sources only known to Luke. There was, you know, some other sources that we don't know about. Does that freak you out? Well, we're going to talk about that because that's important. And it may not freak you out, but it may be freaking your neighbor out because you know what a lot of our neighbors think? They think that this book was just, you know, it's a random, all these random things that just evolved over a great period of time. And uh, they they came up with a concoction that was radically different from anything Jesus ever really was concerned about or doesn't reflect the reality. It's just this made-up, fanciful tale. You need to have this in your ability to go in and conversation maybe with your own family and be armed with some of the things we'll look at next week. So anyway, I hope that was uh, helpful for you. And again, I'm excited. I'm going to be announcing on November 15th, I believe it is, I'm going to be announcing this uh, new uh, concept of how we're going to gather over the coming months. And uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. So let me close in prayer. Uh, I just want you to know we love you and hang around here for a second. And we'll have a beautiful worship song at the end. But let, some of you have gone through some stuff this week. And you're up and down and you feel a little chaotic in your own soul. Don't be. Sink back into the, the comfortable chair of the life and the kingship of Jesus. And I, and I think it'll begin to take some of those roaring waves and begin to quiet them in your own soul. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for Church at the Red Door. I thank you for the privilege to be connected to such an extraordinary community. Lord, we pray for America. We pray for its leaders. We pray for uh, those newly elected and those that are, are going to be in leadership. Why? Because you command us to pray for our leaders. Lord, we pray that America would be a bastion of freedom and uh, a launching place for the gospel for many, many generations to come. As we saw last week, maybe that's being challenged in various ways by some of the strong forces that are speculations about you but don't relate to human depravity. So Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we don't have to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or every election that wants to shake us to our core. We have you and you are the steady rock. Lord, we love you. We worship you as a community and we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. O valiant king, righteous, servant-hearted, Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. We love you, Church of the Red Door. See you right here.